coming up this week off screen. Nicolas Cage's The Runner. We meet Malala Yousafzai and he named me Malala. We study the scout's guide to the zombie apocalypse. Nicholas Holt sets out to kill your friends. Kevin Pollock insists misery loves comedy. Bradley Cooper is burnt. And Saoirse Ronan takes us all to Brooklyn. All those to come and more off screen. This is... This is off screen. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So, interesting ones uh, this week then. And mm. Kill Your Friends, which I keep calling oh, it Kill yeah. Your Darlings. Oh, that was Daniel That Wackler was a while a ago, yeah, it was Daniel Wackler. Kill Your Friends this week, which I know you're, you're a big fan of the book. So I'm I looking certainly forward am, to, I love that book. I'm looking forward to discussing that one with you, because mm. there's some book expertise I require from it. Okay, I'm your man. So, uh, where should we start? Should we start with uh, Burnt? Yeah, uh, Mr. Bradley Cooper. So, Mr. Bradley Cooper in Burnt, which is a sort of a, a dark dramedy, sort of black comedy slash dramedy, less of the com- comedic aspect, though. And it is the story of a chef, Adam Jones, played by uh, Bradley Cooper, who has been in sort of self-imposed exile uh, okay. when the film begins. He's been in self-imposed exile. Uh, setting himself the goal of shucking one million oysters, he keeps a log of them in a notebook. And when he's finished, he decides to return to London to open a restaurant and win and redeem himself by winning his third Michelin star, and thus overcoming and confronting the demons uh, that led to his uh, his public fall from grace years earlier. Here's a clip. Michelin sends its inspectors to restaurants to eat and award stars. One, two, three, or none. No one knows who they are. No one. They come, they eat, they go. But they have habits. They have to stick to a routine to give every restaurant the same chance. Michelin men eat in pairs. Sometimes the Michelin man can even be a woman. They always book a table before 7.30. The first of the pair arrives early and has a drink at the bar. His partner arrives half an hour later. One orders the tasting menu, the other one a la carte. Always. They order half a bottle of wine, they ask for tap water, they wear business suits, they're polite. But attention, they may place a fork on the floor under the table to see if you notice. And they wouldn't drop it, because that could make a noise and make it too easy. Everything from now on must be perfect. Not good, not excellent, perfect. Here's the funny thing with Bradley Cooper. Most people seem to sort of ignore this rather small fact. Bradley Cooper used to be a TV actor. Do you remember that? That he did, yeah, I do he remember did. that. He did, and uh, I, remember, I remember him mostly from Alias, if mm. I'm honest, um, because that's where I sort of noted him from. And then he turned up years later in Failure to Launch and the Wedding Hangover. Crashes. I and think the wedding that was crash. the first place I actually saw him. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, Bradley Cooper seemed to be a movie actor. And then yeah. he got an Oscar nom... And then another, then another, and then another. another, and another, and somewhere along the line, we've all forgotten that he was a TV actor. Now, I've never particularly bought into him as a movie actor, so I've always thought it is a, what happens when you put a TV actor on, you know, on the big screen, you get big screen, you get TV results. We had this with Jennifer Aniston for years <laughs> until sort of horrible bosses showed us actually she could do something more <laughs> yeah. theatrical with it. Um, now, when he was on TV, Bradley Cooper starred in a series called Kitchen Confidential. Are you familiar with this one? I am. You are. This is loosely based on, on Anthony Bourdain, who at the time was not the celebrity he is now. 
and it was and it was it was kind of funny and dark hearted. It was a comedic sort of take on a chef who had had a public fall from grace and then opened a new restaurant to redeem himself. So you I'm can, sure I've heard that before. Yeah, so you <laughs> yeah. can imagine my sort of surprise when you rock up to uh, the screening of, of Burnt and Bradley Cooper's playing a burnt out chef who's had a public fall from grace and he wants to open a restaurant to redeem himself. I, what? And obviously, Kitchen Confidential left a lasting impression on him, but uh, yeah. So, funnily enough, um, he's actually the most enjoyable he's been in some time, most mainstream enjoyable, and less of the sort of dialed down pseudo Oscar waffle he normally turns in. Yeah. Because he always just feels like, oh, I'm a comedian, but I really want to be taken seriously. But David Russell is my best friend. Yeah, uh, it, it does feel like that. This is the most fun he's been in a good long while. And it helps that he's surrounded with this really great ensemble. So you've got the likes of Daniel Brühl. Yeah, love uh, Daniel Brühl. Who doesn't love Daniel Brühl? And he's quite, he's, he's really, really sort of charming and likeable in this. Mm. Um, you've got Omar Sy as well. He's great. Who, yeah. Also great. And wouldn't you know it, playing a Frenchman. Who knew? Kind of typecast, isn't he? A bit typecast. Apart from in Jurassic World, because I don't know where he's supposed to be from. No, I don't, from. I don't know. Is he Haitian? I guess, I don't know. That, that's <laughs> kind of French. Hmm. You know? um, you've got Uma Thurman, who's basically unrecognisable in her little cameo. And that's the thing, there are loads of these little cameos. So you've got Uma Thurman mm. turns up for a little cameo, and she does not look like Uma Thurman anymore. She looks like <laughs> some old lady. Okay. And then you've got uh, Alicia Vikander. She turns up for this little oh, cameo as well. I love Alicia Vikander. I do love Alicia Vikander yeah. as well. We've got some film news about her later. I thought we might. I do, yeah. And uh, and then you've got, say, uh, standing front and centre alongside uh, Cooper, you've got Daniel Brühl, obviously, and Sienna Miller. And Mm. she's got the sort of would, you know, will they, won't they, love interest type thing. And it's faintly engaging, I would say. She's perfectly fine. Everyone is perfectly fine. They're enjoyable. Emma Thompson's got a little little, uh, sort of supporting role in it as this thankless therapist type. Um, It is breezy. And it is sort of enjoyable, and it is flimsy, and sort of, it is, you know... The problem is, it's not five-star cuisine, it is Nando's. In fact, <laughs> no, selling it short, we had this out earlier, sorry. It is, we did, yeah. Someone promises you five-star cuisine and then takes you to Harvester. That's what you get with this film. But sometimes all you want is the nine ninety-nine Harvester meal deal. You want the salad bar... You, yeah. want, you want that, you want the ribs. This is not the paid-for product placement, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it worked. We could, we could. I wish it did. We <laughs> should have contacted them in advance. Let's do it, yeah. Next time. Next um, time was a food set film. But that's it. I mean, the problem is the film is so unchallenging. The film goes in every mm. direction that you know it will. And it's, you know, it, it's got uh, it's got a brief amount of flair from John Wells who's directing here. Um, Stephen Knight's written this as well. Uh, like Stephen Knight, yeah. Lock, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but this is nowhere near sort of uh, Locke calibre. It's a yeah. rather tepid screenplay. It's, it's not boiling, it's simmering. Ah. <laughs> See what you did there. <laughs> but that's the problem. It's not fine dining, it's casual dining. And that's it. I mean, it's not unenjoyable. It's just not very challenging. It's kind of flavorless to keep the food pun going. And you really expected something more. You need a bit of spice sometimes. You, you, but I, I would genuinely recommend if you if you want if you're on the fence about seeing burnt or dropping the dropping the money and seeing burnt. Mm. Go and order the DVD box set of Kitchen Confidential, and you'll get the same thing done better, and with a strangely more enjoyable cast. Because that had Frank Langella and Nicholas Brandon, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had a great cast, actually. I did. You look back yeah. at it now. Frank Langella, man. 
Frank Langella. Yeah, yeah. So, film news for the week. Should we, should we start with the uh, Alicia Vikander? Let's do it. A nice little segue. Nice little segue. segue so, Alicia Vikander has yeah. been linked to the role of Elizabeth Salander mm. in the upcoming reboot of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series or the Millennium Trilogy, but it's now four parts. Because <laughs> it is now. Is yeah. it the Millennium Quadrilogy? Quadrilogy, I guess. Quadrilogy. We're going to make the fourth in the trilogy. The fourth, the fourth in the trilogy. trilogy. fourth yeah. in the trilogy. So it's going to be the girl in the spider's web, I think. Yes, that's true. Sony's yeah. reboot of the girl. I think that is fine casting, and they're jumping on an actress who is obviously having quite a meteoric rise this year. So. She is. I mean, she's having a hell of a year. Uh, Good for her. She yeah, kind of like deserves it. Yeah, yeah, she does. Absolutely. So, next review. Uh, yeah, let's move on. Um, okay, Scout's Guide to Zombie Apocalypse. Right, okay, I want to point out that Alan Frank and I differ uh, wholeheartedly on this. I see 90% of my films with Alan Frank. Yeah. And uh, Alan Frank is 79 years old. He's reviewed films for, <clears throat> I think, three times longer than I've been alive. So, <laughs> I'm not I'm kidding. He's, I think he's 55 years or something, right. he told me once. So, twice as long as I've been alive, realistically. Um, and he loved this, and I didn't so much. But um, just, just an okay. interesting I, I will hear you out. Okay, hear, yeah. me, hear me out. So, this is the story of three high school age Boy Scouts. Uh, one of them is played by Ty Sheridan. Remember him? Yeah, from Mud. From yeah, Mud, yeah, from Ty Mud, Sheridan. Yeah. He's going to be an X-Man. He's going to be an X-Man. Yeah. Although after this, you may wish he wasn't. <laughs> um, and they are three, you know, sort of you know, high school age Boy Scouts. They're only still in the Boy Scouts because one of them had a dad who was really involved in it and the dad passed away. And so the other two stick around to support him. That's as nice. it were. But yeah. they want to drop out because it's nerdy. You can't go to college as a Boy Scout. And on the night of the big secret senior party, wouldn't you know it, the zombie apocalypse breaks. That's unfortunate, isn't it? (laughs) And our our trio of Boy Scouts find themselves alone in a quarantine town with most of the population having been evacuated, save naturally enough for this secret party, and have to go and rescue the would-be love interest and, and, and there's a Cloris Leachman zombie in there. And you know, insert age joke here. Here's a clip. God. That was sad. I think something's in here. Hoggy. Hoggy. What? Come on. Move. So the thing to say about the uh, the Scouts Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse is, first and foremost, is there anyone who's still getting excited by the zombie comedy anymore? Oh, clearly. I mean, clearly. I mean cooties aside. I was just going to say, us, a us, few weeks ago. Yeah, cooties, that was great, but that was that was a nice surprise because we've just been numbed by how many awful ones there have been. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is directed by Christopher, Bre- uh, Christopher, Bre- Christopher B. Landon, who brought us uh, Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. <laughs> oh, that, that cinematic now, classic. I bring that up gem. because that was the one that was unintentionally funny mm. to an, I remember you to an unfathomable that. degree where you couldn't help but wonder if it was actually intentional. Did he know? Was it set in Mexico? Was it? No, was it was set in LA, it? but it was the Hispanic community. Yeah, Hispanic and it was so right, sort yeah. of racially comedic, but on, it seemed to be backhandedly racially comedic. Mm. And you sort of wondered if he had any comedic chops. Doing this, you kind of think, oh, he might. Maybe, maybe he does. Um, he's picked a terrible film to do it with. I mean, it's a horror comedy that isn't horrific or funny. 
So you kind of failed the mandate yeah. right there. Um, I mean, there's a couple of little gags in there. The, the town's called Deerfield, and there's a sign at one point, Deerfield, and it's Haddonfield, 40 miles. You're like, okay, that's the cleverest gag in the whole film. It opens with this uh, this cameo by Blake Anderson from Workaholics. You know, the, the one with the yeah. shaggy dog hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Love Who inadvertently starts the zombie apocalypse because he's high at work, you know. so. Yeah. But the only problem with that is that appearance by one of the trio from Workaholics makes you wish you were watching Workaholics instead. What about if you're watching Workaholics doing this kind of film? Like, the central trio. It, Shaun of the Dead style. They yeah. went from space to... Yeah, if that would... Do you know what? That'd be good. Or if they were like the scout masters, were like the scout leaders. Yeah, you yeah. kind of think maybe because there would be more pedigree in the writing. I think. Mm, yeah. Um, let's get to the cast then. So Ty Sheridan, I, I can't tell if he seems to think that this is going to be the next Shaun of the Dead because I can't think of any other reason he'd have done this. It's not in any way the next Shaun of the Dead. Um, he's autopiloting through it on a sort of orgy shucks <laughs> kind of a card. Um, Logan Miller, who apparently is some sort of Disney Channel. Uh, child star. Who's, That's definitely a Disney Channel name, isn't yeah, it? Logan, Logan Miller. Miller. Yeah, uh, he is trying to be this sort of teenage Jason Siegel type. Maybe a hint of Stifler in there. The kind, kind of, of taller, gawky kind of. Four years ago, yeah, this would have been uh, what's his name, who I don't like from Fantastic Four, Miles, Miles Teller. Teller. This would have been five, four years ago. This was Miles Teller. All I heard of them was but one I don't like, and I was just going to say Miles Teller. Yeah, you didn't even need to Miles Teller. Four. It was young, obviously going to Miles Teller. Yeah. Um, Logan Miller at one point is genuinely outacted by his own buttock and I'm not making that up that actually happens uh, you've then got a third one who's so for- so forgettable you actually have to IMDB him to find out the actor's name I have written it down oh it's Joey Morgan they just save you the IMDb search because you will forget him immediately. <laughs> uh, you've got um, of the female cast, you have Sarah Dumont, who is the female lead. Female lead yeah. um, of her uh, previous work, what's, uh, what's she done? What's most she done? notably, she's number 60 on Maxim's Top 100, uh, Hot 100 of 2014. Good for her. So good for her, okay. yeah. Yeah, good for you, good for you, Sarah. Good for you. Uh, and she's passively enjoyable. She's the sort of she's the uh, the sort of vampy ass kicking stripper. Hot chick, kind of, yeah. Ha, yeah, yeah. Who, who sort of takes them under her wing, takes the pubescent boys under her uh, slightly older wing, kind of thing. Yeah, you know. And then you've got uh, who I keep referring to as uh, Rachel McAdams 2.0, Halston <laughs> Sage. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Halston Sage. Yeah. And uh, she is the single most thankless love interest you've seen in a movie this year. <laughs> the uh, ending of it is, it, it, uh, as far as her character goes, is just hilariously just sort of. Uh, of course you did. But it's right. The fact that you know her female character is is out. You know she's sort of she's cast aside in favor of an empowered stripper in hot pants. That, that kind of tells you everything yeah. you need to know about the love interest in this film. Um, there's serious pacing issues. I mean, it's a 90 minute film, 40 minutes before the zombie apocalypse. Really? Mm. Sure, the dead, this did this in 10. Yeah. You know what I mean? Zombieland did it in the credits. Zombieland did yeah. it in the credits. With Metallica, no less. Oh, that's such a great opening, yeah. <laughs> Should we just stop this now? Just go watch Zombieland. <laughs> I might actually watch it tonight. I've not seen eventually. that for a long time. But um, it's very paint by numbers script. There's no real flair to it. And it's got a very, very forgettable cast. Yeah. But you'll come away from it thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the guy from Workaholics. 
And he's not even one of the main characters. That's the part that amuses me. It's kind of like, it sounds like the Drew Barrymore in Scream. It is kind of like that, yeah. Uh, It's not particularly inspiring. It's gimmicky enough to pull in a few punters in the brief window before it turns up on Netflix. Yeah. I guess because it has the word zombie in the title. Yeah, kind of is. Reels them in. If it reminds you of anything, it's going to be those sort of comic book series that people, that publishers like Icon put out. Yeah. Uh, the, they're not really mainstream comics, but they have a little, little cult following. Mm. The comic series will sell 10,000 issues as opposed okay. to 100,000, you know. But, uh, eh. <laughs> and Band's rating is eh. <laughs> My rating is eh. So, some film news uh, before we move on. Some to more, yes, please. Ooh, Wild Tales. Do you know of Wild Tales? I'm not particularly familiar with it. Um, I think so. The Helmer of Wild Tales, Damien Zifron, his name is, Zifron. has signed on as the director of the long, long gestating movie reboot, The Six Billion Dollar Man. Oh, with Marky Mark. With Marky, Marky Mark. Mark. With, with Cyber Marky Mark in this I case. love it. The original is for six million. I know it's for six billion dollars. Yeah, well, we're getting to a stage where it's going to have to be six billion. Yeah. Soon, but six trillion seems sorry. Uh, it's also got a release date now as well, December 22nd, 2017. 17, yeah. So, eh. uh, One final bit as well. Nicole Kidman has entered negotiations to star in Wonder Woman. Yeah, I heard about this. Uh, potentially as the main main villain, main antagonist. Main villain. Oh, I, I had her down as Wonder Woman's mum in my head. Well, but, I could see that working, yeah. yeah. I could see it working. Kind of doing like the Russell Crowe, Joel, for Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. it kind of, kind of works, yeah. I suppose. She'll just be like a, you know, an alien hologram. <laughs> the holographic equivalent of the Microsoft paperclip. <laughs> I see you are trying to resurrect a dormant species. <laughs> I like Russell Crowe in that film. He's he's not the problem with Man of Steel. No. I assure you, he is not. <laughs> I will find you. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Before um, taking off in space penises. Space penises. Yeah. Space what penises. is that all about? <laughs> I will find him. And then it takes oh, a couple of years. Crazy eyes, Shannon. Eddie Redmayne then comes. Along. I create life. I create life. <laughs> quiet loud. Quiet loud. Quiet loud. <laughs> so should we do the box office top ten then? Let's do it. Number ten, Crimson Peak. It's on its way out, isn't it? It but, is. So I, I, I did, I did enjoy it. I did like sad. it. I like it. I do. It's a bit of gothic fun. It is. is. What's not to like? Diablo del Toro. It, it's a bit predictable. Fine. Definitely, yeah. I don't think uh, Pacific Rim really pushed the boat out with a complex narrative, if we're honest. No. It pushed the boat out with, oh yeah, it's not, it's not really what he's doing now. I mean, obviously, that, no. was, that was something that he's done in his former cinematic life. Uh, he's he's twisted and, and turned stuff. before, and now Certainly. we've got, yeah. you know, we've, now we've got sort of a narratively by the numbers, but visually and stylistically interesting film. It's and a house that bleeds. It is a house that yeah. bleeds, literally. Which is great. And that's my favourite thing about Crimson Peaks. When mm. I, I sat there under pressure over that, and it, when, you, when you're in a room full of film critics, you all laugh <clears> at the sort of inbuilt, the in-jokes kind of thing. And when it gets to the stage where Tom Hiddleston, very early on in the film, says, oh yeah, this red clay bleeds through the walls in my house. We all just laugh, just furious laughing in the screening room. We're thinking, yeah, of course you does. Of course, of course your house bleeds, Tom. <laughs> Keep doing your Peter Cushing thing. We know your house bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> and fair play. And yeah. you know what? Well, after the after the joy that was Pacific Rim, it's nice to know in the, in his follow up to that that uh, Charlie Hunnam does not have the worst uh, accent in a film in a Del Toro film. No. Because as bad oh as his God. American accent is, Jessica Chastain's British one is far. It is abysmal. She is a fantastic actress. You, you are. Isn't she an Oscar nominated actress? Twice. Just twice, twice Oscar, and she can't do an English accent. 
Oh man! And I rewatched Interstellar last night. And oh, did you really? Uh, I did. And you know what? Like, she's so good in that. Yeah, yeah. Number nine. We have Inside Out. Bing bong. <laughs> Don't. I'll start welling up. No, no. Have you <laughs> seen this? The honest trailer for Inside Out is is out. Have you seen this? And if you've not seen the honest trailer for Inside Out, it is absolutely <laughs> terrific. Uh, do check it out on Screen Junkies <laughs> the feed. Feels. It's on. It's on our feed somewhere yeah, as well. It's great. Know. It's so good, and it really hits the nail on the head. Absolutely. And this is, because I've watched it a couple of times in the last couple of weeks now, <clears> and <throat> uh, I, I'm starting to get more of the sort of unadulterated love of the film. I liked it very much. Now I get the love, because yeah. those characters are so endearing. And, yeah. and it is, in a sense, it yeah. is classically Pixar. And uh, I love Lewis Black, I love Amy Poehler. Yeah, I think casting is... Uh... The casting oh. is what makes it. Just a quick, uh, quick, uh, quick thing about um, the lady who plays Sadness, um, Phyllis, Phyllis Smith. Smith. Yeah. I was reading an interview. She was a casting director. Was uh, she? Yeah. Because I know she's in. I know her from the office. Yeah. Well, prior to being in the office, she was a casting director, and uh, she says that she would love a casting director to get like an Oscar award of her own. No, it kind of works. Actually, yes, yeah, yeah, in a sense, yes. The funny story, though, with The Office, and you'll know this more than most people, was that most of the cast members of The Office actually were behind-the-scenes Well, yeah, of course. So a lot of them were the writers and the producers, and Mm. and they all became the cast members as well. So it kind of makes sense that the casting director... Just ended up being it. She's very good. (laughs) Because everyone else today, wardrobe people are starring in the show, why not? I, I can think of no other explanations to what BJ Novak did for a living. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was the guy that went and got you a blazer. Yeah. <laughs> Number eight. Tannhauser, Met Opera. Yeah. I think I can safely say that neither of us has seen Tannhauser, Met Opera. Number seven. Ugh. Vin Diesel in The Last Witch Hunter. Hmm. Well, you know how they keep trying to do a spin off to the series Supernatural? <laughs> yeah. um, this this actually would work strangely enough really? this actually would work and that's the thing it does feel like something that inevitably in about three or four years time the sci-fi channel is going to pick up as a sequel series you know, like they did with I Legion. think it would work better as, yeah. you know how Legion became Dominion on the sci-fi yeah. channel and it feels like this could go that way and I actually I would watch it as a TV show I must admit mm. as disposable supernatural action yeah just throw know, away fine but... a 45 minute dose a week but it, it's not a film it's not a whole, wholly satisfying film mm. it is basically entertaining and nothing more it's idiotic but it's supernaturally idiotic <laughs> number six spuds in space <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the Martian. Is, is, is there anything left? Is there a compliment left in either of us? I know. <laughs> we have gushed heavily. About we love it. We love it. We love the music. We love Ridley Scott's Chewetel is great. Ridley Scott's direction is great. Yeah. The music is great. Uh, Drew Goddard's script is fantastic. Uh, Matt Damon's never been yeah. better. Take my compliments. Just just take my compliments. Take some 4DX money, some IMAX money. Take all <laughs> the money. Just give it me on Blu-ray now, please, so I can watch oh, it can many, it many Blue? more times. That's going to look great on Blu-ray. That, oh, week it's out, my house, 3D Blu-ray, we're on. That's happening. Surround sound, we're doing the full works. <laughs> Number five. Suffragette. Carrie Mulligan, Mel Street for... I love how you say minute. jet, and I say jet as if it's courgette. <laughs> I say it like courgette. Um, empowering, engaging, interesting feminist drama. Love the cinematography on it, which I'm not going to get into, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, Carrie Mulligan he get, delivers the requisitely brilliant Carrie Mulligan performance. Mm. The Meryl Streep cameo is as excellent as you'd expect and will naturally lead to her token Oscar nomination for the year. Hella Bonham Carter, though, I think deserves more props than she's gotten for this. I feel like not a lot of people have been talking about her. No, for this and she, film. 
what the role that you think is played by Meryl Streep mm. based on the marketing is actually the role that Helena Bonham Carter plays. Right. And Meryl Streep just has, I think, really one scene. And she's in a car. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, she, she goes from the what seems to be the Evita balcony to a car. Okay. That's her scene. That's and it. but no, I, I did enjoy it very much. Number four. Now this one I don't think that you enjoyed quite as much. Paranormal uh, <laughs> Activity: The Ghost Dimension in 3D. Well, they did. They added a dimension to the Ghost Dimension. <laughs> uh, it's pointless, plodding, uninteresting, unentertaining, unfrightening gumph. Yeah. But you know what? If you've stuck with the series this far, what's one more? And you know what? The series is over, so thank God for that. But I will give it the one compliment I have to give it. It did very well with the 3D. It mm. created an interesting 3D effect. I wouldn't have thought fan footage and 3D can work together. And I hope they never try it again. Because God knows I never want to see another fan footage film. But <laughs> it works in this case. Okay. Number three. Nibsy. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know, Come on, kid. Yeah, that's it. Nibsy is the takeaway. Nibsy, yeah. We should have just called it Nibsy. Nib- I, I Nibsy the movie. I hope when it comes to the Oscar nominations, at best point that to does go to bloody blah Joe Bloggs for Nibsy, <laughs> <laughs> just as the joke nomination. But, uh, yeah, pan. Oh, just just bad. avoid it. Bad, it's bad, so bad. so bad. Um, and that's the thing because I wasn't interested at any point. In, mm. in the story, I think you kind of hope you go along with the with the introduction and the whole you know the abduction. We're going to Neverland thing because you you go along with it all because it's Joe Wright. He can direct you know nineteen uh, forties London just fine, and then and you go along in in the assumption that once it gets to Neverland, you are going to mm. see something spectacular, and you don't, and you get a very dull kind of you know, requisite chosen one revisionist chosen one origin story trademark um, but we've seen how many we've times seen, well Superman did it last year so you know yeah. we've seen it Spider-Man did it the year before that. we've yeah. seen it so many times now I'm bored of this now not everyone is the chosen one no you know ugh and Peter Pan especially is not the damn chosen one but he, he was wearing pan pipes so he, he must be pipes. but he needs to prove himself yeah first. you're wearing pan pipes the prophecy says the boy who wears the pan pipes however the jump one. off that cliff but please Fly. prove yourself what, what why yeah number two Hotel Transylvania 2 I was planning on seeing I this I was going to say I know right we were going to see it and then got waylaid because life has other plans I was going to text you on Sunday night so did you see it did you see it but, uh... hopefully it's going to be this Sunday so oh, well. fair enough I am just I have to see it you have to see. I have it. to. See, I just. I'm really, really look forward to it. I really love the Gendy Tarkovsky. Uh, I love his animation style. And, yeah, I love it, that. it is because it's, it's, it's slightly more simplistic than, for instance, Bruce Tim, who is my favorite mm-hmm. animator because I grew up on the whole you know, '90s Batman animated thing. Yeah. Um, but Gendy Tarkovsky comes sort of after that for me because he as well was a relic of the '90s with things like Johnny Bravo, Johnny Bravo yeah. Samurai Jack, and mm. things like that. And I love his animation style. And I think it's translated nicely to the big screen. I would like to see him do other projects outside of this Hotel Transylvania thing mm. because there will inevitably be a third one. Well, there point. is, but he's not going to direct it. I would assume he'll be involved in like mm. an exec producer kind of capacity, but he won't be the director. Oh, okay. So, well, I'd like to see him try something else, though. Um, I wouldn't object to seeing a Hotel Transylvania 3, but I don't think it's a franchise that's got too much... I don't think any of these animated franchises have that much longevity in them. Yeah. There comes a stage when... You, know, you don't want to watch Ice Age 5. It's, 
well, which we are, will be coming. We are going to be watching Ice watching. Age Five, but let's think like that, that's gone too far. You know, we didn't need four Shreks. We don't need five Ice Ages. We didn't no. need three Madagascars. These things can be single films, and you can still spin. Just go and do an animated series if there's longevity in them. Yeah, take them to an animated. But they series. often do it as well. That's the like, problem, yeah. yeah. And I've not seen uh, Dragon Rider, so I have no idea how that fits into How to Train Your Dragon. But <laughs> having, given how much I loved the second one, I might, I might give that one a try. Number one. Oh, this is a bit of a shocker. This is a the top spot, isn't it? Spectre with forty-one million. <laughs> because you couldn't see it, it was sold out everywhere. Oh my god! Just put it in some kind of context. The next one down, Hotel Transylvania two, uh, two million. million versus 41. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Um, Right, suspected. You saw it. Yes. Yes, Uh, I did. We we spoke about it last week. We reviewed it. 30 second or last version? Yeah. Um, It's fine. I didn't enjoy it as much as Skyfall. It's probably just below Casino Royale for me, I would say. In in, in terms of of, of the Daniel Craig. I'll go with that. He's my third favourite of the Daniel Craig movies. I think if it is the last one for him, it does wrap it up quite nicely. What I didn't go into last week, I'd like the team dynamic for this one. (laughs) Because I feel like we've not seen that for Bond The Bond team dynamic works better, doesn't it? Yeah, and we've got a great cast for that dynamic. They do. And I would hope that even if Daniel Craig leaves, that they keep the casting on, for instance, Money Penny Q. I would imagine that to be the case. I would hope so. It always has been. Yeah. But uh, I just, I was, I think I was unenthralled by it. I wasn't too entertained, but because it, it did, it was a very baggy film. Hmm. There's a lot of bagginess to the film. It was long. It's also, it, it also some pacing only, issues. It is. But also, it keeps its gritty sort of streak going only when it suits it, which is really antagonizing. Yeah. But never mind, neither here nor there. So. Some more film news before we move on to the mm. last review for this bit. Oh, uh, Amy Winehouse. Oh yeah, there's going to be an actual uh, biopic. Yeah, because yeah. we had we had Amy. We had uh, Amy, the, which is now being pushed for Oscars, deservedly so. Deservedly I could, so I could so see that yeah. winning actually. Oh, it's got it's got loads of competition. I don't because it's what, so high profile. What one of which we're going to be talking about? Well, yeah. yes, but uh, Numira Pace has been uh, cast as Amy Winehouse. I, I can see that. I My thing that. is, is she not too old? Also, how the hell is Newbie Replace going to pull that voice off? That's a good point. I'd, yeah. Because no one's thought about that voice. Because Amy Winehouse had a great, beautiful singing voice. Her speaking voice, not quite so. We might have just got the rights to certain songs and whatnot. We'll just do it. I know that the music so. rights are going through at the moment. but oh, so. is, is Mitch Winehouse actually letting somebody be in charge of that I, I, I have no idea and I don't really want to get onto a conversation I, about Mitch Winehouse I can't stand but him I can't yeah. stand him either but uh, I just find it easier not to talk about him yeah. so uh, one final bit then oh Bad Santa 2 which is a project oh, I'm yes, following please. under a microscope <laughs> I don't know why there's going to be Bad Santa 2 but there is um, it's now going to be directed by Mark Waters who brought us Mean Girls yeah, of course and Tony Cox and uh, oh, Kelly Brett Kelly um, mm. are both returning as oh, uh, the elf What's his name? What's the, what's the elf's what's name? name? The Elf Sidekick. I forget, yeah. I forget and Thurman Merman. Thurman Merman, of course. Thurman Merman yeah. and the Elf are back for the sequel. Here, no word here on, is my question. Yeah, about Lauren Yeah, No word on Lauren Apparently they are looking for a female lead, though, which suggests that she won't be returning. Get Alexis Bledel. <laughs> Get Rory. Get Rory in. Yeah. Get Rory in. <laughs> we had Lorelai. Get yeah. Rory in. Now. I'll settle for Emily. I'll have the mum. I'll have yeah, the grandma. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, you know what? Going to go really niche with it. Get Melissa McCarthy in. Oh, she's um, too expensive. She's too expensive. Fair enough. So one final review then before the break. Uh, he named me Malala. Should we do that? Yes, certainly. 
Uh, real quick on this one, this is a documentary about Malala Yousafzai, um, who is a um, Pakistani girl who stood up to the Taliban. But this is how we present her with it. She stood up to the Taliban, um, claiming that girls, you know, girls deserved an education. Uh, she was shot in the head for her troubles, uh, survived, and then went on to become a spokesperson <coughs> for uh, you know girls in education. Um, all around the world, third world countries, etc. She became um, a high-profile public figure and even won the Nobel Peace Prize mm. in 2014. We have a clip. My father said, have you forgiven them? All this time you've, you've never felt angry? No, not even a, as small as an atom, or maybe the nucleus of an atom, or maybe a proton, or maybe a quark. Never angry? Never. Islam teaches us humanity equality, forgiveness. It doesn't matter for me if my left side of my face isn't working or if my uh, I cannot blink this eye properly. It doesn't matter for me if I can't smile properly. It doesn't matter that I'm not hearing in this ear. I can't hear. So he named me Malala there. Um, there are problems with the... I mean, it's a great documentary. It's very moving. It's very inspiring. It does present its own problems, though. And its problems come down to um, a, a, a very disjointed narrative, which inadvertently adds fuel to a negative fire which doesn't need to be there. Um, the film begins with her being, uh, you know, coming out of the, the coma, the mentally induced coma, mm. etc., recovering, going on to become the figure that she is. And it shows us what she is, but then only in the third act does it show us why she is by going back in time to the events that led up to her getting shot. I think that's an interesting. The standpoint. problem is that the film, by doing that, stands on this platform of she was a sort of you know have a go hero who you know decided one day to just speak out because she couldn't take it anymore. In the third act, it then emerges, of course, that she grew up under her dad's very similarly themed tutelage mm. and not only spoke out many, many times publicly, she also worked with the BBC. And he's like, right. okay, this, this has gone mm. a, a bit... This has gone more into the realm of a straight-out assassination uh, story, which you can't help but think if you'd just gone in with that at the beginning, this story would have played... Uh, you know, a lot better. It's not that it's not that it undermines the point. It's that it kind of puts the point on very shaky ground. And you think with a piece as uplifting and as inspiring as Hinami Malala is, you kind of can't help but wonder why you would make that decision. It's the kind of thing that you would you would look at in the editing stage and think, ah, no, the timeline's a little bit too disjointed. It's created an inadvertent second narrative. It's it's weirdly created this this idea that you know her dad has put ideas in her head, which I'm, I'm not saying is the case, but the film could really be interpreted that way. And it's purely down to this narrative mm. and how you structured certain events. You think just put this linearly. Put this linearly and you answer all the problems. The problem is, no. It has got some absolutely beautiful animation, though. It oh, really? uh, narrates the story of um, uh, Malalai? Malalai, who was the Afghani princess hmm. in old ye olden times. And it's animated really beautifully. I had to get the name of the animator somewhere. But uh, well, I did have it. But no, no, I don't. Um, 
And that animation is absolutely terrific, really beautiful. And they come back to it several times. They show us Malala's birth, for instance, in the same way. Mm. Um, mm. the, the, the big sort of takeaway from the film is Malala herself, who is sort of instantly charming and disarmingly witty mm. and genuinely a pleasant person to witness on screen. You, you kind of like getting to know her for the 90 minutes that you do. And that's all part of what makes it such an uplifting and inspiring yeah. sort of a story. Um, I, I, I recommend it if you want that sort of uplifting mm. sort of tale. I do definitely want to see it. But I, th- I would be intrigued to see what you make of its sort of disjointed narrative, to be honest. Because mm. that, for me, was a bit of a smudge on an otherwise perfectly enjoyable tale. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. And we're back. So where should we uh, where should we venture next? Mr. Let's Alan? go to Brooklyn. Let's go Let's to go Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Wayne's World segue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So Brooklyn, um, which is the latest film starring uh, Saoirse Ronan, who's an actress I wish was in more things. Mm, uh, me too. She's great. About every twelve to eighteen months, she comes back with another great performance and reminds us that she's basically one of the well, probably one of the top three young actresses out there mm. now. Um, Brooklyn is uh, based on a novel, and you can tell straight off the bat that it is so, uh, by Colm Toybin, I believe his name is. Uh, novel of the same name. It's sort of a story that's equal parts American dream and melodrama. It's directed for the screen by John Crawley. Um, it is the story of Eilish. Say, say my name again? Eilish. 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 E-I-L-I-S. Eilish. Eilish. Irish is Irish, you see. and uh, Yes, Irish Irish, you see, um, leaves Ireland uh, for the new world, for Brooklyn, in the the early 50s, um, to venture out, get a slice of the American dream, as it were, make a life for herself. Um, She's basically, she's had a job and accommodation arranged for her by the the local priest, played by Jim Broadbent. Always good to see him. It's it's only really a cameo by Jim Broadbent, but you know what, it's always lovely to see him. Isn't it? It is, when you you know what you're getting. Like in Paddington. It just shows up in Paddington. Yeah. It's great. You know, and so she uh, she's not long in Brooklyn when she um, encounters a new love, uh, later husband, and before long she has to return to Ireland following her uh, sister's funeral to just spend some time with her uh, her grieving mother. While she's there, however, her two worlds start to collide. And the aftermath may ensure that not much is left standing. We have a clip. You're going to live in America? Yes. The papers and everything? Yes. And a job. How'd you manage to arrange all that? I didn't. Someone did it for me. A priest, my sister knows. And how do you feel about it? How long do letters from Ireland take to arrive? My sister Rose said she'd write straight away. They take a long time at first. And then no time at all. You family in America? Friends? No. You'll meet people easily enough. Where are you going to live? Brooklyn. How'd you know that? Lucky guess. So you have this really terrific performance by Saoirse Ronan, as you always do. You always get a great performance by Saoirse Ronan. You have this great performance and you've got this fantastic supporting cast. I do mean fantastic supporting cast, which is Jim Broadbent, Julie Walters. Donald Gleeson. Donald Gleeson. How do you say it? How do you say it? Donal. Donal. I've been calling him Domnall. It is smelt Domnall, but it's it's, Donal. Donal Gleeson. Donal Gleeson. Um, and then you've got you've got a couple of slightly on the nose, sort of a bit too cheeky performances by Eva Burtwistle, for instance, mm. and bizarrely Emily Beck Ricards, 
Who? Okay. Who, do you know Emily? No. Emily Ricard plays the character Felicity in Arrow. Oh no way! You, you really? know the nerd pinup? Yeah, of course. Who, who yeah. I, I think she's stunning to behold. She's, she's one of my favourite people on TV. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the nerd, the nerd fodder in Arrow. Nerd fodder. <laughs> nerd fodder in Arrow. Uh, but they are slightly out of out of step. They're maybe a bit too goofy. <clears throat> but other than that, you have this immense supporting cast. I do mean brilliant. <clears throat> um, you've got a script. Do you know who writes Brooklyn? I do not know. Do I, Brace yourself. Make sure you're strapped in. I'm strapped in. I'm going to tell you first and foremost, the script for Brooklyn is terrific. I'm going to tell you that the character writing is top-notch. And then I'm going to tell you the script for the screenplay for Brooklyn is written by Nick Hornby. What? How did I not know that? I didn't know either. And you're like, sure, of course it's written by Nick Hornby. Well, why wouldn't it be written by Nick Hornby? I want to watch this and watch An Education again. I want to watch from back to back. And that's it. That's a very good comparison piece as well. Mm. Because uh, Brooklyn wears its influences on its sleeve. And An Education is one of them. Of course, yeah. Uh, You've got Far and Away is in there. Atonement is in there. All these great period piece, melodrama, romance tales. They're all in there. And and then you... it's a, it wears more on its sleeve, but at least it adds that, that sleeve to a new and you know, alluring <laughs> outfit. And in the context of the number of outfits we get shown to us in this vintage paradise of a film, that's really saying something. Um, it could perhaps have done with some slight tweaking as regards its pacing. Mm. It spends an awful lot of time, for instance, setting up Eilish's new life before it then threatens it. Uh, so don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. By the time her new life is threatened, we think oh, okay. Ca- ca- kind of it needs that. I kind of obviously, it. I've not seen it, but perhaps it needs that extra time. To if I were going to make you care about it, if it, I think I think it's ten minutes short, two hours. I think. Okay. Um, in terms of her going back to Ireland and the actual sort of the threats or yeah. the plot coming in, that would appear to be about twenty five minutes. Twenty five minutes, no more than thirty before the end of the film. Ah. And it does seem to be entirely the third act. Hmm. that's kind of a shame because I would rather the film had gone on longer and let it unfold a bit more naturally it was like 220 something like that yeah I could could live that does sound like your general meat of the film yeah Yeah. it does and it is it is the meat of the film there's a lot of setup and then and it's great setup it's wonderful setup and the third act though I will say, in spite of that pacing problem, Nick Hornby's writing really sells you on, for instance, the emerging relationship between Saoirse Ronan and Donald Gleeson. <laughs> even though it, it's really hurried through, yeah. you really invest in their dynamic. You really get their relationship. Well, he's, he's always great with setting up characters, isn't he? And always, I mean, obviously, this is, form here. this is like an adaptation, but... Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's the thing for me. It does race to the finish line. Once you get to the third act, it really races for the finish line. But... It's an admirable and impressive race. <laughs> and, you know, c- coming towards the end of an admirable and impressive film. You go into Brooklyn and the plot immediately promises you a story of wonder and consequence. And you end and what you've had is a film of wonder and consequence. Mm. That's actually great. You've you delivered it in spades. Good for <laughs> you, John Crawley and Nick Hornby. Good for you. I want Nick Hornby to write more screenplays of this calibre. I think that he um, will. Like, when I was last time that he wrote wrote a book? When was the last time he wrote just a novel? Like, a few years, isn't it? Because he's been kind of concentrating on like he seems to have gone into or originals. Or... Mm. But I don't remember him writing a book since How to Be Good. He did a really great project with Ben Folds a few years ago. Yeah, it was an album where Ben Folds did the music and sang, and then all the lyrics were done by Nick Hornby. Huh. It's really good. I forget what the album's called, but you can, you can Google it and stuff. I mean, if anyone, knows, anyone knows music and lyrics, it's Nick Hornby. So, right, right. <laughs> and, and Hugh Grant. He knows and music Hugh, and lyrics. 
So, um, Riz Ahmed, we've got to talk about Riz Ahmed this week. Oh yeah, he's joined something, hasn't he? He's joined the Bourne sequel. Yeah, I am on board with this. I, I am very on board. This is starting to sound pretty Get the reluctant fundamentalist on board. Get him in. Yeah, get him <laughs> in. And yeah. Uh, what else have we got? We got to, oh, 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 Key and Peele. We've got to talk about Key and Peele. Oh, this is great. Key and Peele are teaming up with Henry, Henry Selleck. Yeah. To do an animated stop motion film. Has this, has this got a name already? Wendell and Wild. Wendell and Wild. Yeah. Wow. Which is... Brilliant! This this is fantastic. Mm. Keen Peel doing an animated film. Can't wait. Sold. I love that. Obviously, the show was fantastic, but it has sadly come to an end. But now they're doing films together. I know. I, I yeah. can't wait. There's there's so much sort of fertile ground Absolutely. there for me. So, uh, what should we do next? Misery Loves Company? Yes, let's do it. Uh, so Misery, Loves is... Com- Misery Loves Comedy. <laughs> I knew put the wrong you said trailer. Misery Loves Company? <laughs> I said Misery Loves Company, yeah. I, oh, I, right. I almost put the wrong trailer on the site because of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Misery, so, Misery Loves Comedy. Well, so, we're obviously, we're now a year past uh, the death of uh, Robin Williams mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, the discussion of the link between comedy and internal happiness is now more of a prominent discussion than ever before. Um, so you've got this documentary uh, Misery Loves Comedy which is by uh, written and directed by Kevin Pollock yeah. who most of us remember as the Lazy Eye Guy from Wayne's World 2 <laughs> Lazy know, Cross eye. the T's and dot the um, lowercase J's pa- Partial Ocular Albino I believe from Wayne's World 2 That's for politically correct, politically correct term yeah. He dots the T's and dots the lowercase, lowercase J's. J's And he's written and directed this um, This is a, I tell you, this is an exploration of the happiness of comedians Does Misery generally love comedy? Do the two go hand in hand we have a clip there's nothing like getting a laugh from people it's the narcissist fantasy it's easily the single craziest thing that i have ever done in my life no one knows but us what we go through and it's my job to sit there and yell at drunks you can do whatever you want you can yell you can spit it's great you can do that publicly comedy is a drug i was connected with these thousands of people around the world and they were just like we know you're making this up as you go along and it's not good it went from them loving me to them hating me i came crawling back after being chewed up and spit out by this goddamn town so naturally enough if you get a certain number of comedians on camera to do talking head interviews as this film does um before long it's gonna become you know amusing and interesting and this very much does um however that being said it it seems to be a case of uh, quantity over quality because Mm. what he's done is he's gone and gotten so many famous names in there they're quite big names as well Tom Hanks is in there He's a big name. Tom Hanks is in there. <laughs> Rarely get any bigger. Amy Schumer's in there. You know? Yeah. Uh, Jason Alexander's in there. Okay. But yeah. A bunch of big names. David Kochner, uh, Jim Jeffries. I'm a big fan of Jim oh, Jeffries. Oh, Jim Jeffries a lot. Um, you like Jim Jeffries? <laughs> yeah, shocking. <laughs> I, I, I would have thought he would be a little bit lowbrow for you. I, I do go lowbrow. Do, do, yeah. do, do you go blue? Do you go a bit blue case? Bit blue. Bit blue bit for blue. dads. Yeah, bit blue for dads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really lowbrow. That yeah, method. It's... <laughs> um, but. <laughs> And this is where it gets a bit funny. Kevin Pollock's definition of the term comedian is slightly broad. Um, and, and this is confirmed early on when Freddie Prince Jr. turns up. And yeah, your, the look okay. on your face kind of sums up my feelings on this as well. And you're kind of wondering all the way through this, why, why the hell Freddie Prince Jr. is there? Yeah. And it's not until very, very late in the game that they all of a sudden start discussing Freddie Prince Jr.'s late father, who actually was a comedian. And they force Freddie Prince Jr., who incidentally is now middle-aged and grey-haired, to very awkwardly relive all of his father's various infidelities and misdeeds 
which you can't help but wonder exactly who thought this one was a good idea. Misdeeds? How? What? What kind of misdeeds? Oh, drugs, alcohol, women, the usual. Right. But they they force Freddie Prince Junior to go through it because obviously Freddie Prince Senior ain't around to. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, and you think well, that's very odd. And very awkward and very uncomfortable. Yeah. I wonder why um, he like agreed to do that. Unless it was quite cathartic for him. To I don't know. He takes it in his stead. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. He's, he's good natured. Professional. But then you get to um, because there are clips played over the end credits. You actually witness more of the end credits than you you would otherwise. And you can't help but notice a thank you to section, a thanks section, mm. which includes the names of an awful lot of relatively known U.S. comedians. And I'm thinking of people of the likes, for instance, of Richard Kind. Okay, yeah. Bing Bong. A Bing Bong. And you can't have a look. Hang on. So Richard Kind was involved in this, but I can't imagine that you've got all these people on this thanks list and you didn't interview them. And you can't help but think that they they were interviewed. But, but then those clips are in, and yeah. I, I say this with some authority because it's written directly underneath, edited on Adobe Premiere. Those clips are in the Adobe Premiere clips bin. <laughs> That's where those interviews yeah. are. They are they're in Pollock's uh, Adobe Premiere bin. Um, it, it's, it's very strange. The problem is that because you've got this celebratory gathering of comedians all telling, you know, happy celebratory stories of, you know, working in stand-up comedy and there's all these anecdotes. Oh, you know, you go on at 11 at this club and you go to this other club at 1 a.m. You go on stage and then by the time you're done, it's 4 a.m. And really, you just want to eat. You know, okay. Sound like Louis C.K. a little bit, then. Yeah, Louis C.K. doesn't turn up in this, but uh, Louis Black does, incidentally. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah, anger yeah. does turn Anger up. turns yeah. up, yeah. Um, the problem is, because it's got all these anecdotes, it doesn't really make much of a point. You then get to, very, very late in the film, I'd say probably about 15 minutes before the end, and there is this notable moment where Kevin Pollock has seemingly sat in the edit suite and thought, oh, God... Uh, we're nearly at the end of the film. Get me the clips that actually had the point, and we'll just whack <laughs> them all in. The and that's it. All of a sudden, everyone just spontaneously stops. Yeah, so I was about personal happiness, and, you know, and I've struggled with depression. But this is 15 minutes before the end. You're thinking, oh, it's kind of shoehorned in. Yeah, yeah. they've shoehorned in the point. You think, okay, I can understand if you want to shoehorn mm. in the other stuff, but you're a documentary. Your job is to educate, entertain, and inform. Yeah. Has Kevin Pollock made any other documentaries? Offhand, I couldn't tell you. I, 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 I I'm think of him. I'm I think of him mainly as a comedian, but I think of him as a guy from Wayne's World too, like you well, said. I think of him mainly as a comedic performer. I know he has done other things, but I think of him mainly as a comedian. This is his first film he's directed, so maybe he's just kind of he's finding his way with. You think maybe? Structuring, perhaps, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure what the release schedule's been. I know it's, it came out about a month ago in the US, but funnily enough, this coincides with this week with uh, the widow of uh, Robin Williams finally opening up oh, of course, about yeah. her husband. And uh, you think, oh, well, it's a shame you couldn't tie that in. You couldn't have tied in the interview somehow. I wonder if someone had actually said, well, why don't you do the interview for us and we'll, we'll tie this in, mm. we'll make it a mental health awareness. And that's the other problem with Miserable's comedy. It's weirdly dismissive of the idea of mental health and it generally it takes its misery for instance purely as emotional misery rather than any kind of mental health problem mm. and you think well that's strange because Jim Jeffries himself brings up that he struggles with depression and you think well that's kind of glossed over because mm. only Jim Jeffries really mentions it 
But I would have thought that would have been the you central You would have thought that would be the point, wouldn't Like, you? just from that title, yeah. you get that sense. And that's, that's a film I would want to watch. No, that's the problem. It's, uh, it's in, the interviewees are engaging. Uh, it's very celebratory for stand-up comedy. But ultimately, it's a bit of a whopping misfire. But it's a shame. I, you know, I wanted to enjoy it. Didn't quite. Ooh, competition plug for the week. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, pop along to onscreenfilm.com go in our competition section we've got some goodies to give away including goodies for the next film we're reviewing Ooh. Kill Your Friends Yes, we've got those um, so we've got stuff going up all the time always we can't, we can't really plug it in advance because I can get an email this afternoon that stuff that's going to go on if, on Monday if you just keep going on periodically yeah, every keep week. going periodically on <laughs> yeah. onscreenfilm.com and go in the competition section. there is if stuff you, if, added if you want some kind of novelty maze runner notepad you, you try your best <laughs> if you want a set of, of playing cards for a movie which doesn't feature playing cards <laughs> odds are they're on there but, I've still got some Exodus ones you still got some Exodus yeah, ones last year I've, I've still got the Men in Black 3 ones somewhere. Like I do, actually. Oh, man. <laughs> For that big poker scene in yeah. Men in Black 3. Oh, of course, yeah. With all, all the, like, space dogs. Yeah. And, space dogs and, playing space poker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that one, yeah. So, um, oh, we've got to talk as well about uh, hashtag uh, Force for Daniel. Oh, this, this is, is great, this yeah. This is a wonderful story. This is fantastic. Which, weirdly, fanboys... Already, it's already been a movie, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is so strange. Yeah. It's weird, this exact thing happened. I wonder if mm. that's where he got the idea. Oh, potentially, I don't So, terminally ill, uh, your man named Daniel Fleetwood, say your man, he's 32, yeah. uh, terminally ill, um, is not expected to necessarily be in great shape or even alive by the time Star Wars The Force Awakens mm. opens in December. Someone got in touch with Disney's behalf. A movement began. Hashtag Force for Daniel. And J.J. Abrams phoned him personally and offered him a private screen of an unfinished edit of Star Wars The Force Awakens. How fantastic is that? It makes me happier to be in this world. Good on you, J.J. Well done. Good for you, J.J. I wonder if Lucas would have done that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> he probably would have said, the version you're going to see now is going to be completely different to the one that's in the I bet the Jaws Lucas just annoyed that he hasn't seen any <laughs> version. <laughs> so, I didn't know we were making one. Don't let him see. Don't let him see what a good Star Wars movie looks like. That's it. A good, tw- a good 21st century one, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, on to Kill Your Friends, then. Yes. Um, which is uh, the adaptation of the novel by uh, John Niven. Yeah. You're a fan, aren't you? I am, yeah. Um, I said last week this is my favourite book. I would put it in my top five. Really? Yeah, I've, yeah. Had a, I've had a refrank and I've looked at the books that I love. i put it in my five, definitely. you put it in your five. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So this is adaptation of the novel by uh, John Niven, directed by Owen Harris and starring Nicholas Holt, James Corden, Georgia King, uh, Tom King, I believe, from mm. Da Vinci's Demons, yeah. uh, Jim Piddock. Craig, Craig Roberts? Did you say Craig uh, Roberts? Craig Roberts, I believe. Yeah. Hell of a cast. It's good cast. Um, and this is the story of uh, Stephen Stalfox. Stalfox. Stephen Stalfox, a 27-year-old music industry A&R man, which we all forget <laughs> is what Simon Cowell used to do for a living. Yeah. This is what Simon. This is mm. how we wound up with uh, Mr. Blobby and who were the characters from The Big Breakfast? Oh man! He, he gave them a record as well. Yeah, he did. Yeah, this is how Simon Cowell became. And now he's a multi-billionaire. And now he's so. a multi-billionaire. So, basically, Stephen Stalfox will do anything to be the top of his game. He won't stop it. There, there is no limit to what he will do. No line he will not cross. But as his uh, as his endeavors start to fall down around him, he finds himself increasingly desperate and forced to resort to measures that even he would have found deplorable, or at least slightly reprehensible. A bit dodgy. A bit dodgy beforehand. Here's a clip. Last year, 1996, 
The turnover of the British music industry passed the billion pound mark for the first time. I see. Boom times. But there's always competition. Imagine you're standing on wafer thin ice. Beneath your feet, you can see sharks circling. Terrible sharks with hypodermic syringes for teeth. These are your colleagues, your friends. Roger and I both have to live with an uncomfortable statistic. At some point in the coming year, one of us will probably be fired. I have no intention of it being me. I'm going to guess that this is from the novel as well. The really ruthless, really sadistic streak that fuels yeah. this film. Now, I wanted to confirm that because it is the defining triumph of this film, is this tone. Its tone is absolutely wonderful. Um, it's, get, it's been compared a lot to American Psycho, and there is a very, very good reason for it, because it's the only thing like it in the world that you can mm. think of. It's something like that. Um, I did say as well, it reminds you of sort of Brett Easton Ellis films like Less Than Zero, things like that, although more comedically tinged. Mm. The Brett Easton Ellis thing perhaps is because of the American Psycho connection. Um you also have uh, uh, Nicholas Holt, whose performance here is the first time you will ever look at Nicholas Holt and think, wow, you actually have genuine leading man potential. You can carry a film. You can carry a film. I never thought of that. Nicholas I Holt still need to see this film, and I need to be convinced, because uh, this book, I did, I loved it. It was one of those books, and it's happened very, very rarely, where I started reading it, and I carried on, and it took me less than a day. Hmm. I just powered through it and read it. I mean, I've, I've read it two or three times since then. Well, Nicholas Holt is terrific as as the Stephen Star Fox that we get on okay. screen. Where it falls apart slightly is in his voiceover, which is really sort of stilton, and he struggles with his uh, his, his elocution somewhat. It, it's kind of odd. Mm. It, it's not quite up to the level of Emily Browning in Legend. But <laughs> Landon. <laughs> Landon in days. <laughs> <laughs> Bit Peggy Mitchell there, Emily. Bit bit. Peggy Mitchell. But Nicholas Holt is at least trying, and he does fare better than Emily mm. Browning did, but he's still slightly too stilted. And he is having a ball, quite clearly. Why wouldn't you? That's it. Yeah. Why wouldn't you have fun playing It's a fantastic character. character, that's the thing. I mean, obviously he's not the person I would have chosen, but I need to see the film. I would definitely see it. Um, yeah. You've got Georgia King in there as well, whom I have a newfound love for. She makes this, this yeah. delightfully sort of seductive, sinister presence. Just, but albeit sort of un, sort of unexpectedly, she's introduced as one thing, becomes another, becomes that she's a character that evolves, or and and it seems to happen sort of in the background, sort of just just over the shoulder of the characters you're supposed <laughs> to be watching. You've then got uh, James Corden, who's you know he's playing yeah. slightly against type, and it works. So you play Waters, uh, the biggest. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. it does. There's a, there's a scene. But yeah, there is a scene. You probably <laughs> expect. And you've got Joseph Mall, who plays the head. Of, I forget the name of the character. The head of business for the uh, uh, for the label. Yeah. Uh, if his Not performance isn't based on Lucifer himself, I would be somewhat <laughs> shocked. Um, however, though, I do think the MVP is Edward Hogg. Now, Edward Hogg is fantastic. Do you like Edward Hogg? Yeah, I, I can see Bunny why. Bunny of a Ball. Bunny of a Ball. Have you ever seen Bunny of a Ball? No. Oh, he is. Oh, you need but to see that out. He plays DC Woodham here, yeah. who is this sort of uh, the Willem Dafoe character. I was just going to say, he's Willem Dafoe, isn't he? So wide-eyed and creepy, and just not quite. You just don't a bit off quite kilter. know. Yeah, a bit off kilter. You don't quite know how this one's going to work out. It does play along the lines of Willem Dafoe's mm. an American Psycho, <clears> almost bit for bit in places. 
Um, it's a film, though, that thrives on energy. Hmm. It's all about the energy of the visuals by Owen Harris, which are quite frenetic, quite sort of frantic. Um, you've got uh, John Niven's also done the screenplay for this as yeah. well, so it, it's a really that has given me some faith. Yeah, you know. it's a really razor sharp screenplay. I would imagine it's quite faithful to the book because you certain things, think, yeah. certain things are so detailed that you think they have to be. There's some aspects in the book, obviously, again, not seeing the film, mm. but there's things I don't know how they can put it in the film. Exactly. <laughs> Just give me one. There's a scene, I think it's after the Brit Awards, he meets James Dean Bradfield from the Mannix and then goes into a room and sees some people doing things. Doing things. Doing things. Ah, uh, no, I don't believe that's in there. Right. Um, yeah. Is there a line in the book about uh, Oasis are a couple of car thieves with a Beatles songbook? Because think, that yeah, had me about, yeah. howling in laughter. <laughs> but uh, he does. That's not that's accurate, though, is it? It is, well... <laughs> So you've got to say you've got the you've got the visuals you've got the, the razor sharp screenplay. How is the soundtrack? That's, that's what I was going to say. The best retro soundtrack of this year. If last year belonged to Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> this year belongs to Kill Your Darlings. And I've been playing nineties music. You said all, it again. Kill, kill, your, kill, kill your friends. friends. I've been listening to nineties music all week as a result. Cool. Uh, I think the very first song in the film, I believe, is Beetle Bomb. Nice. And, and he yeah. sort of spins out from there's a lot of prodigy in there, there's a lot of chemical brothers in there. <laughs> that's what you want. Um, and that's another thing, because the film does kind of prove that you, there is still a purpose for the chemical brothers in 2015. <laughs> oh, they're still doing well, man. Um, <laughs> I, that's it. It is a fun, thrilling, enjoyable film. Um, it's the kind of film that you want to enjoy with your friends. Go, go, have a. If you've got, if, if you're above a certain, if you're over 25, if you can remember the 90s music. In any way, because I was talking to Chris Honeysett from the Sunday People afterwards, mm. and we were talking about the soundtrack, and I went, "Oh, it's like I was 15 again." <laughs> and he said, "Bloody hell!" I was like, "Took me back to when I was like 25." <laughs> like, oh, really? and it is. Everyone's talking. You, I would have you come I would out like talking eight. about your 90s. I, I was probably like eight or nine. You'll remember this. L- listening to Blur. Yeah. You'll remember when the you'll remember when the radio was good. Oh yeah, definitely. I remember watching Top of Pops and uh, yeah, exactly. watching Nicky Wire from the Manics on there and being utterly I don't know, terrified, I think, really, for Nicky Wire. So <laughs> kill your friends, definitely, but make sure you take them to the cinema with you first. Yeah, definitely. So mm. uh, any more film news to cover? Uh, just a couple more pieces, I think. Oh oh we've got Luke Evans is replacing Jared Leto in The Girl on the Train. Uh yeah. Fair that, that'll be fine. I, I'm I'm okay with oh, that. Okay. Kevin Spacey has signed on to star in the Billionaire Boys yeah. Club as Ron Levin. If you don't know the true story, it is of two young men who basically set up a Ponzi scheme mm. in 80s LA to fund their lavish lifestyle, only to uh, find one of their investors is penniless and kill him. Said murder victim inevitably going to be yeah. uh, Kevin Spacey. Uh, the two boys. The two boys are going to be Ansel Elgort. Yeah, he's great. I like him a lot. Perfectly fine. And Tara Negerton. So last review of the week then uh, <laughs> Sir Nicholas of Cage The world's greatest living actor The world's greatest living actor Nicholas Cage in The Runner uh, Which is um, his third film in as many weeks Strangely enough We didn't review one because it went straight to DVD He's had, he's had this quite a slow year hasn't he? Yes, yeah. Yeah, We had Pay the Ghost That went to DVD Yes, We reviewed Outcast. Yeah. Which was last week, I believe, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. And now we've got The Runner as well. <laughs> so this is the directorial debut of uh, producer Austin Stark, which uh, you think... That's uh, a good name. How Games of Throny is that yeah. name? Austin Stark. <laughs> and um, this is something unusual for Nicolas Cage, really. I mean, not, not unusual in the grand scheme of his career, but unusual in recent years. This is a straight drama. 
and uh, you think, okay, I'm on board with that because I liked um, Joe. I liked Joe very much. Of course, much. yeah. Um, what was the uh, Paul Schrader one? Dying of the I Light. Liked, I didn't like Dying of the Light. Dying of the Light. I thought idea was good, execution not so Is that much. that one where he gets his, gets his ear chopped off? Yes, that's yeah, it, yeah. yes. That's the CIA dementia one. Yeah. Uh, this is some, somewhat more of a drama then than his usual generic thriller that he's made his bread and butter. You know, the mortgage-paying films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of a Faustian character drama. It's a performance-driven look at sort of moralistic compromise. And it all centres around the wake of the BP oil spill. Hmm. Yes. So, Nicholas Cage is um, a, uh, a, a, a U.S. congressman. I believe he was a congressman at first. U.S. congressman for his district, which is struggling to overcome the uh, fallout of the BP oil spill. Local economy is going into the toilet. Local businesses are closing down. There's environmental concerns. And he sets out to challenge Washington and BP to fix what they have what they have ruined. However, his uh, the the, pop, the popularity he gains and the career rise he uh, he obtains as a result of it also bring with it personal scandal which swiftly ruins him. And he's forced to then rebuild his life and reassess his priorities whilst also fighting for the good people <laughs> of his constituency. Here is a clip of Sir Nick of Cage. Mostly bloggers and local. It's what you'd expect. Speculation about a return to politics, questions about the motives behind your organization. And people calling me a narcissistic asshole. <laughs> I warned you the press was going to spin it this way. You didn't wait long enough for the dust to settle. At least you haven't commented publicly. I just don't understand how my work can be construed as a negative. I mean, this isn't some resume builder, okay? Then why do you have a publicist? No good D goes unscrutinized. Not when you're a politician. So to Nicholas Cage's credit, uh, his performance here and sort of, uh, you know, he, of, of the downfall and sort of the, the rebirth of his congressman, whose name is Price, incidentally. Not Price. based on a real guy, even though they're okay. real events. Yeah. Um, they are a step above what we, I think we get usually from Nicholas Cage. The straight to DVD. The straight, a step yeah. above his usual d- direct to DVD <clears throat> fare. Um, he's not overacting at all, which is, seems to be his usual forte. Which, I mean, for God's sake, for outcast. Last years. Out, oh. I mean, considering the last time we saw him on screen was outcast. Good God. Yeah, where he's doing 20 different accents yeah. and he's wearing a dead crow on his head, exactly, like Johnny Depp. Yeah. <laughs> and the issue is that he's not overacting, but he is restricted, strangely, by this material which simply can't live up to the quality of him as a performer. Hmm. And um, you've got a great supporting cast. You've got Connie Nielsen, Peter Fonda, Wendell Pierce, right. um, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson's Sarah Paulson. in this. Yeah. And they are trying, they're trying their best to sort of, you know, aid Nicolas Cage in propping this film up. Yeah. But ultimately, you've got a weak screenplay. You've got very stilts and very TV movie direction. And it does feel, it feels very much like a TV movie all throughout. And it just, it, that's the problem. It is entirely too televisual, entirely too ropey. And then the centre of it all, you've got these performances, which are light years ahead of what, what, what else is being delivered. Um, it's it's what I say. It's just a whopping disappointment, and mm. it, it, I never thought I'd say this. I expected better from Nicolas Cage. <laughs> what after watching Outcasts? <laughs> yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's not Nicolas Cage's fault. It's all on Austin Stark. It's his. Mm. It's his screenplay. It's his direction, and it doesn't quite come together. It doesn't work, and that's a shame because the story is interesting. It does sound interesting. That's it. The story is interesting, and it would make a great movie, but I think it needs a better oh. screenplay and better director. 
Shame. Can't win them all. Sorry, Nick. You weren't the problem this time. But I'm sure you'll have another film out in a fortnight. I'll I'll be reviewing another Nick Cage film a week or so. Oh, absolutely. I'd imagine. Film of the week. Kill Your Friends. Okay, cool. Going to give it to Kill Your Friends. I have to. It was the most fun. But uh, next week, we've got some interesting ones. We do, yeah. So next week, we've got The Hallow. Which, yeah, uh, I am excited about that. This is Corin Hardy. Corin Hardy, Michael Smiley, there's a couple of unknowns, I'm not sure of the names, but I've, I've heard good it's things. It's an Irish horror film, isn't it? It is, yeah. We've also got Tangerine, that's out next week. Uh, we've got The Fear of Thirteen. We have the return of Russell Crowe in Fathers and Daughters, uh, in which uh, he'll star alongside Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. not sure how that one's going to pan out. Uh, Maggie Smith is the lady <laughs> in the van. I can't wait for that. It could That's be good. interesting. And of course, we have <laughs> probably the fourth film in the last few years we made on this particular subject. Steve Jobs, directed by Danny Boyle. Yeah. Doesn't feel like we have a new Danny Boyle film on the horizon, does it? No, but when you watch it, it feels like a Danny Boyle film. Does it feel like that? Because you've yeah. seen this and I haven't. So I, I'm seeing it Monday morning. I enjoyed it a great deal. I, I'm looking forward to uh, to get to trade notes on you with that one. So uh, that's all we've got uh, time for this week mm-hmm. off screen. Uh, this has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. 